Lamentations chapter 1 and verse 12 is our text. We read there, Is it nothing to you, all ye that pass by? Behold, and see if there be any sorrow like unto my sorrow, which is done unto me, wherewith the Lord hath afflicted me in the day of his fierce anger. As we have read this, this chapter, it comes, as is commonly supposed at a time, just shortly after the destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonians. This nation came in from the north and was ordained by God to come down and to destroy the place and to take away the children of Israel into exile for all of their sins. And ultimately, because they had forsaken the Sabbath day, they had been working, they had been going about the worship of Baal, they had been going about the worship of false gods on the Lord's day, that one day in seven, which is set apart for the worship of God. And so they had been carried away. Jerusalem had been destroyed. And the nation was in great perplexity. And here is Jeremiah, and he is lamenting the state of his, his city. That city of Jerusalem, once so great, so invincible under the Lord, when the Lord ruled in there. But now it was reduced to ashes. The adversary has the upper hand. He has conquered. He has taken over. And Israel are in exile. And he is a weeping man. He is a sorry man, a sad man, because of the state of the nation. And yet he owns that they have sinned. But we have this remarkable verse, verse 12, which, although it does have some application, as we can see, doubtless to Jeremiah's condition, his great sorrow that he was in, but I would like us this morning to see further than just Jerusalem, the children of Israel in exile, further than just these things which Jeremiah speaks of, further to see the man of sorrows, further than these things, further than to see the great sorrow and the misery which was caused in Jerusalem and by the children of Israel in exile, greater than these things, the sorrow of Christ Jesus the Lord, the sorrow of the Lord, his sufferings. This is what I want us to see. Is it nothing to you, all ye that pass by? Behold and see if there be any sorrow like unto my sorrow. And we can see here Christ. Is it nothing to you, all ye that pass by? Is it nothing to you, all of Christ's suffering? All ye that pass by. Behold and see if there be any sorrow like unto my sorrow, which is done unto me, wherewith the Lord hath afflicted me in the day of his fierce anger. The question must be asked, what think you of Christ? What is Christ to you? What do you think of him? What do you make of him? When you go out of this place, perhaps, tomorrow, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, what's Christ to you on those days? What does Christ mean to you then? Yes, while you are here, in the place of worship, perhaps again when you come this evening, you may say, Christ is everything to me. But what about the rest of the week? It's one thing to say that when you're amongst the people of God, but when you're amongst your work colleagues, when you're mingling with other people around you, perhaps at the shops, perhaps when you are doing various daily business and you interact with people, what is Christ to you then? 
Is it nothing to you? Is he just something to you? Or is he everything to you? Well, let us consider this morning Christ's sufferings. And I have three headings that I would like us to consider this morning. Firstly, we shall consider the reality of Christ's sufferings and think for a little while upon this great misery and sadness. What Christ went through in order that sin might be forgiven and that souls might be saved from hell. What did Christ go through? He is described in the prophecy of Isaiah and that very familiar chapter, I'm sure, to most of you, chapter 53, the most beautiful chapter and one beloved to each of us. He is described there in verse 3, he is despised and rejected of men of man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. We esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. We see something of a prophecy there of Christ coming what Christ would do, what Christ would suffer. Was all Christ suffering at the cross? Was that the only place where he suffered? No, it was not. He suffered to some extent. We could say he was a man of sorrows all his life. Being the very Son of God himself, he knew what was befalling him from the very beginning of his life on the earth. We see him at age 12, questioning with the doctors in the temple. And when he is there, he is, he is of course, he, he concerns his parents and they come back searching for him because they have gone off and with a company of others and he has been left behind unnoticed. They come back and he says, I must be about my father's business. He knows then what he is about. And surely there must have been that weight upon him knowing that he was going to Calvary knowing that this was going to be the end, if you like, of all of his ministry, was going to be the cross. He bore that burden on his mind through his life, we may be sure. You can see this at other times, of course. When he was age 30, he begins his ministry. Did he then associate himself with those who were well-to-do, those who were well-off, those who were doing well in life, those who were looked up to, esteemed by everyone else? No, we do not find Christ with that sort of company. We find Christ rebuking that company for certain. The Pharisees, those high and lofty lawyers, those men who thought that they knew everything about the Scriptures, who set such strict and precise rules for living, he did not spend time with them, though they were looked up to by the people. Instead, we find him amongst the beggars. We find him amongst the blind. Those who are sick, we find him with the tax collectors, the despised people of society. We find him even with those who have recently lost loved ones, the recently bereaved. We find him there. And we find him weeping at the grave of Lazarus. He knew sorrow. And this must be a comfort for us this morning. If we are in Christ, we may be assured Christ knows sorrow. 
not just the sorrow of the cross, which is so great, but as a man, we see that he knows sorrow like we do. He went through the daily hardships, just as we do. He is not one who is entirely unacquainted with our dealings. He knows all about the difficulties that we face every day, the small things and the great things which come up in life. He knows all about them, for he has experienced these things. Yes, indeed, he healed many. He went about and many he healed. He raised some up from the dead. He did great miracles of these things. But he was mingling amongst these people who were so poor. They were the poor. They were the scum of society, we might say, looked down upon by everyone else. And surely this must have weighed on his spirit somewhat, being in this company all the time. We see him very often lonely. We see him alone upon the mountaintop. There it's all bleak and barren. There is nothing growing. There is no shelter for miles around, just the open sky above him. And he is there alone. What is he doing? He is praying. We find him often in this state, on his own, praying to the Father. And we find him in fasting, in much toil, in much labor. We find him doing so many things. And yet, how often do we find Christ resting? You know, friends, when we work, and we have done much work, perhaps more than usual, we find ourselves to be weary. We find ourselves to be tired and worn out. Christ was often in this state. You cannot suppose that Christ was always in his best condition, so to speak. But he knew weariness. He knew tiredness, just as we do. And then we find him near the end, in the Garden of Gethsemane. What do we find there? A sorry sight indeed. Now it begins to become a reality. Now it, it is as it were, it begins to dawn on him. Perhaps a little more. It all comes to pass. It is thought by some, perhaps now he begins to bear something of the wrath of God upon him. In, verse 20, in Luke chapter 22 and verse 44, we read of him praying to God in that garden, being in an agony. He was in an agony in prayer. We can learn many lessons concerning prayer from that, friends. We ought to be in agony in prayer, the more agonizingly. He prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was, as it were, great drops of blood falling down to the ground. There is great agony in his soul here. But look, is that the end? He rises up from prayer and he comes to his disciples. And he finds them asleep. Little comfort for him from men. There is little comfort for this man from those who were closest to him. All all his life he had been teaching them. Those three years they had been together. I should say, not his whole life. The three years they'd been together. They'd been so slow to learn. But they'd been with him. Thomas, of course, the one who is remembered, of course, for doubting the resurrection yet was the boldest. He said he'd stand with him. When Christ said he would go back into that area where Lazarus had died, and the disciples said to him, don't do that. 
The Jews want to kill you. Don't go back there again. And Thomas, of all of them, is the one who stands up and says, let us go with him that we may die with him. But here he is let down by these, for they are sleeping already. And then Judas comes, his own disciple, who he has taught, and betrays him into the hand of his enemies. He's betrayed by his own disciple with a kiss. How cruel is this? How sorry is this? How sad is this? He suffers thus. And then, of course, all of his disciples forsake him. Despite all of their grand boasting that they would not forsake him, yet every one of them leaves him and goes away. And then, of course, he is tried. He is scourged. He is mocked. They spit upon him. They give him a crown of thorns. And then he is led up to be crucified. There is a mob crying out, baying as it were for his blood. Crucify him! Crucify him! They cry. And then, upon that cross, what pain there is in crucifixion. What pain there is just in the mere human hanging upon a cross, nailed to it. What agony in the flesh alone. It is flesh torn by the nails. The weight of his body hanging upon that cross. This is bad enough, you say. But it's worse than this. Not only was there all the physical anguish and pain But more than this, he had the back of his father turned upon him. How can this be? How can this be that the father should turn his back upon his only son? Yet we see it happening here. Father, why hast thou forsaken me? He cries out in anguish on that cross. The father forsook him. And we can never, never fully understand what that meant. We can see something of it. We can see something of it in a very small way. If perhaps a father turns his back upon a small child and will not comfort him, might think it to be a cruel thing to do. But it shows in a small way the anguish of the little child. His father will not speak to him. But how much more when we are speaking of God and the Son of God that has abandoned, as it were, by his Father. What does all this mean to you this morning? What does all this suffering mean to you this morning? What do you say? Why did he suffer? Why did he do all of this? Why did he go to all of these lengths to do this? Was it just a noble act to see what he could do? Was he just a very eminently good man? Had he done something terribly wrong? Well, we know he hadn't. Even on trial, they could find nothing to accuse him of. Pontius Pilate, the governor, he washed his hands of him. He could see no fault with him. I find no fault in this man, he said. 
Well, we come on to the second point, the reason for Christ's sufferings. The reason for Christ's sufferings. What was special about this man's sufferings? What was it that set this man apart? Christ Jesus, who suffered on this cross, he was both fully Son of God and Son of Man. This is another mystery which we can scarcely understand. He was fully God, and yet at the same time he was fully man, in the same person. This was not just an ordinary man who was died upon a cross. There were many of those. The Romans did this, much. It was one of the worst forms of death for the worst criminals. They crucified them. But this was not an ordinary man. This was no ordinary man. Not in this case. And it was no ordinary crucifixion. Yes, there was the pain of it. But there was more, as I have said. There was the wrath of God poured out upon this man. Had he offended God? Jerusalem and the children of Israel, in lamentations, they had offended God. They deserved the punishment which they received. They deserved worse than this. It was the mercy of God that meant that they were only sent into exile and not entirely destroyed. But Christ bore the wrath of God for sins which were not his own. It was not his own sins at all, for he was perfect. As God, he was perfect, and as man, he was perfect. There was no flaw in him to be found. Yet he bore the wrath of God for sin. Well, what was the purpose of this if he had no sin? The Son of God bore the wrath of sin, that some, some, and what comfort there is in that, some might not receive the punishment that they deserve. We all, every one of us, we all have broken the commands of God. We have all fallen short of his high standards, those gloriously high standards which are set for us, which we have here in the Word of God. We have all fallen short. We have all sinned then. We have all accredited to our account a great debt of sin. Sometimes if you look at the, the debt of our country at the present time, how much we are in debt, sometimes you think, well, that is a staggering figure. Well, you know, friends, however large numbers may be spoken of by politicians and rulers and governments and all these things, all these vast figures can never begin to portray for our minds the debt of sin that we have against God. They can never begin to understand how much we have offended God, how much we have sinned against Him. Even if we were to come up with some great number, some millions of trillions, that number probably doesn't even mean much to you because it's so vast and so great that our minds can barely understand such a great vast quantity of things. If we were to count the number of sins against God, we could not even begin. It is pointless for us to say, well, I only sinned once yesterday. It would be a silly thing for us to say because we sin 
in our minds. We sin so often and so regularly in our own minds, in our thoughts, if not by our actions specifically. And every little thing we do wrong, it counts as an offense against God. And one of these offenses, just one of them, never mind the many, many more, just one of those would be sufficient for us to be condemned. Because God is holy. God is perfect. He cannot bear the sight of sin. How can we then, when we are sinners, sinning on such a basis, regular time, so often, how can we hope to have any hope with God? How can we hope to have any standing before Him on our own merit? Because there can be none. Condemnation is all that must await. And friends, if you do not know Christ, if Christ's sufferings are nothing to you this morning, that is your state. I fear for you. If you do not know Christ, if Christ is not all in all to you, I fear for you. Because of the fact that without Christ, there is nothing but death. You see, everyone dies. Yes, everyone dies. I speak not just of death, but eternal death. Everlasting death. It's a place called hell. So scarcely spoken of in many Christian circles in these days. Yet it is a terrible place. For no reason would you ever want to go there. There is no reason why you would ever want to go to hell. There are those, of course, you know, who say, well, I want to go to hell because if that's where my, my parents are or some relation has gone, they want to be with them again. But friends, do not take this. We are called to, to, to forsake our parents if need be, to forsake all these things to follow Christ. The terrors of that place are unspeakable. Do not think that they will be not so bad as we portray them to be. The very best of preachers would fall short in his description of hell. He would fall a long way short. We cannot begin to comprehend that place. Christ loved us. That was why he came. This was why he suffered. This was why he died upon the cross. Love? Love for who? It was love for us. Love for his people. Why did he have love for his people? Was it because they, they, they were good people? They were upright people? They did all the right things? They went to church every Sunday? They read their Bibles? They prayed sometimes? Was this why he loved his people? No. There was nothing in us. We were no better than everyone else. We are no better off in the sight of God than the worst sinner in the world. But it was amazing love. It was amazing grace of God. The amazing mercy of God that some should be saved. That some should be saved from the wrath to come to eternal life in Christ Jesus the Lord. Christ suffered then. He suffered for his people because he loved them. While we were yet dead in trespasses and sins, we could do nothing of ourselves. We were dead, 
But Christ loved his people. Christ came so that there would be a way of salvation opened, a fountain opened, in which men and women could wash their sins away. It was a fountain of Christ's blood shed on Calvary. Well, then let us come thirdly to our third point this morning, the response to Christ's suffering. The response to Christ's suffering. And again, we come back to our text. Is it nothing to you, all ye that pass by? What is this to you? What do these things mean to you? What is it? What is Christ in your heart? What is Christ to you personally? How much do you care about Christ? How much do you think of Christ? How much do you ponder upon Christ? Can you say in all honesty this morning that Christ to you is the chiefest among 10,000? Can you say this morning that he is your soul's beloved? He is your saviour? Can you say these things this morning with confidence and in truth? This is the only hope. It is Christ. Not just Christ of the Bible. Not just Christ who is we hear about in the preaching. Not just Christ who maybe we hear about at Christmas and Easter. Not just Christ, a great prophet, a good man, but Christ in your heart. Do you know him this morning? Do you know who he is? Do you know his beauty? Do you see what he has done? You pass by. Maybe you come here Lord's Day after Lord's Day. Maybe you come into this place time and time again. And then you go out again. And you're unchanged from week to week to week. Nothing seems to happen. You just sit through the services, maybe because you've done it all your life. Maybe you've never known anything different. And so you come and you listen to the services every Lord's Day. Will you pass by this morning? Or will you stop? Will you pass by again? You know, you will not always have opportunities. I can say comfortably that I cannot guarantee that you will be here or that you will be able to hear another message from the Word of God. There is no guarantee that we will be here next week. The Lord may have come. He may have called some of you home. We do not know. Time is short. But today, today is the day of salvation. Today is the day of salvation. And it is a glorious salvation in Christ. It is a glorious, grand gospel. That gospel that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. And the apostle writes, of whom I am chief. And I trust every one of us could take that to our name this morning. We would be ready to confess, yes, I am the chief of sinners. We would rival him for that position. And we would go on. And we would tell others also, Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief.
He saved me. He can save you also. What must I do to be saved, you may ask? You must repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Look upon these sufferings. Behold, he says in Lamentations, and see if there be any sorrow like unto my sorrow. Is there anything like this? Is there any message like our gospel? There cannot be. This is unrivaled love, unrivaled suffering, and an unrivaled Savior also, who we declare this morning. Christ Jesus the Lord, look to him. You have seen something of his sufferings, and I have done a very poor picture of painting them. But I trust you have seen something of it. You have seen his sufferings. Look to him, even this morning. You who believe and you who do not believe, look upon him. Draw strength from his name. And if you've never known him before, I call on you. Look to him. Turn away from your sins. Turn away from your way of living, which you have gone on for maybe many, many years. Maybe for some it will be fewer. And fly to Jesus Christ. Give up on yourself. You can do nothing for yourself. We cannot help ourselves. But look to Christ. In Him is all sufficiency, all help that we need. And may the Lord bless every one of us this morning. Amen. Let us close by singing together hymn number 196, which is based very much upon this verse. All ye that pass by, to Jesus draw nigh. To you is it nothing that Jesus should die? Your ransom and peace, your surety he is. Come see if there ever was sorrow like his. May we all respond to this invitation this morning. Mm -hmm.